Hi, folks. Welcome back. This is Dr. Scott and Ellie Not So Confidential with the ever intelligent, brilliant, and incredibly supportive. Oh, oh. Yeah, you are incredibly so supportive, sweet. Dr. Only Shiloh. the people I like. <laughs> <laughs> That's called really good boundaries. That's something that's taken me decades to learn oh, that you had. Oh my goodness. I know. Out of the gate. But hey, <laughs> Hi. happy new year to everyone again. And a big thank you to everyone that has jumped on the Patreon wagon and joined our academic institution, as it were. That's right. By upgrading your tiers. It has been such a blast chatting with you about everything. I, yeah. mean, the, the, I mean, I just wasn't expecting I would be like sitting in my jammies on New Year's morning or recognized New Year's morning yes. and chatting about the Rose Bowl parade. That right. was really cool. <laughs> and if Trump can have a university, we can have an academic institution. So why not? We're just going to tell people you can't get licensed from this degree <laughs> right. as opposed right. to some schools that won't tell you that. I think I am going to make little certificates for our doctoral level folks and send them to them. <laughs> That would be fun. If we could get the board, the mailing box to switch into a mortar board hat, that would be super cool. Oh, look at that. So I apologize for my voice before we get started because I got Jason Usry must have sent (laughs) his crud across the country because I'm now down with it. Oh, it sounds nice. But it's crud. Yeah, I know. It sounds sexy. And I'm heading that same way, I think. So I have my hot lemon water here. I have my Hall's mini throat lozenges and my finger on the mute button. So oh, fantastic. I think we're set. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been downing a throat coat tea oh, all yeah. morning, which is also another phenomenal one. That but. is good. Yes. Before we run into that and before I go man down, let's jump in. But our recap for last episode is that was our pathological lying episode, which was the first psych episode of 2023. And in that, we explored whether or not pathological lying is simply a symptom or is it a psychopathology all on its own. And of course, we dive into the research that's there and talk about some timely public figures who are getting wrapped up in lie after lie. So it's a good one. Definitely. Yes. But today, today is our vintage case for January. And this is a story of a accomplishment, a big accomplishment by a very remarkable woman, I think, at the heart of all of this. And it's a woman who built an empire as a widowed and a divorced single mother, but it all likely became too much for her and eventually claimed her life in a way that we see all too often these days with overwhelmed, unsupported celebrities. But she wasn't a movie star. This is the story of the first major nationwide female evangelist. So let's talk about her and the true crime connection to Los Angeles. So Amy Elizabeth Kennedy was born in 1890 to a religious Methodist family on a farm in Ontario, Canada. And she was a bold and curious child, not shying away from questioning her faith and her tambourine-thumping Salvation Army mother by reading novels and she would attend the movies. And that just wasn't done in her little town and in her household really with people of such strong faith. But it truly seems that she wanted to explore all beliefs for herself before she decided on the path for her. And additionally, I think it's really interesting to note that she grew up in a time where Darwin's theory of evolution was starting to be taught in grade school. His theory had come about about 40 years prior, but it was starting to make its way into science courses. And that directly contrasted with her messaging at home, which must have been a really interesting time for a lot of people, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think certainly part of that is reflected in 
a lot of what we talk about here on the show of people standing in two worlds, multi-generational families, maybe immigrant families or families coming from one part of the country and one set of rules and then a new wave of technology or a new wave of society phenomenon start to occur and create a rift. I mean, that's yeah. kind of story as old as time, I guess. But what's happening here that you hit on so perfectly is it is the advent of telecommunications and the advent of radio. So it's not only that she was the first female evangelist, it was the first televangelist female that had as wide of an audience as she did. So you pointed out that she began exploring her belief system. This continued. But by the time she was a young woman, she went to a tent revival, a Pentecostal tent revival, and saw Irish-American preacher Robert Simple espouse his beliefs to a large crowd, very, very much performance-oriented as mm -hmm. it is in the Pentecostal church. And she felt touched by the Lord, and she fell in love with him. So it seems like things were just kind of coming together to open the clouds of her path before her, like her path was now chosen for her. So even before her 18th birthday, she married Robert Simple. And the two became pregnant as they set off for a expansive evangelical tour of Asia. Tragically, the couple both contracted malaria and Robert quickly succumbed to the disease in August of 1910. Amy went on to give birth one month later to Roberta Star Simple, and then she returned to the United States. Yeah, I mean, that must have been really scary. I don't know what it's like getting malaria when you're so pregnant and right. then to lose her spouse. And they had traveled all the way to Asia, but she made her way back. She comes back to North America because originally she's from Canada, the States, and she starts raising her daughter. And two years later, she falls in love with an accountant named Harold Stewart McPherson and tried to settle down into a more traditional static family life in Providence, Rhode Island. They had a son named Rolf McPherson, but it's reported that Amy suffered postpartum depression as well as having to undergo a hysterectomy and an appendectomy that almost led to her death. So during the procedure, she reported that she fell in and out of consciousness and she could hear the medical staff essentially saying that she was going, that she was dying. And Amy reports that she was well aware of the Lord coming to her and empowering her to choose to live or as she put it later, to heal herself. And she did just that. She made a miraculous recovery and made the decision then and there to commit herself to spreading the word. In 1910, she took her kids and left her husband in Rhode Island to preach the gospel. She teamed up with her mother and they hit the road together in a Packard touring car with the slogan painted on the side, Jesus is coming soon, get ready. I think I've seen that car in Hollywood. <laughs> I think you've seen several of them. Yes. I, lo I love the t-shirt that says Jesus is coming and on the back it says everybody look busy. Yep. Anyway, they were preaching in tent revivals in churches across the country, and it was one of the first and earliest accounts of two women traveling by car across the country without the assistance, help, or companionship of a man. And by this time, she was simply known as Sister Amy. Yeah, there's, you know, it might not sound like a big deal, them traveling without a man, but there's accounts of, you know, this car getting stuck in the mud and Amy putting clothes around the tires to gain some traction and get it going again. And I think we talked about this in our Bonnie and Clyde episode, you just think of like what traveling is like in those cars back then. If you think it's rough going cross country now, oh my gosh. That's a great point. Very primitive, not a lot of comfort, you know. Right, right. She's basically like, you know, the lowest level bus and truck of a theater production. Yeah, with her mom and her 
two kids. Well, she created a huge following essentially from the ground up and became a huge success at a time in which many rural areas thought fundamentalist beliefs were being challenged from a lot of angles. Like you were saying at the beginning, you know, science, alcohol, Hollywood, all of that was felt very threatening. And so she was sort of this breath of fresh air kind of bringing people back to their their beliefs. And Amy would, it was really a production like she had seen with Robert, her first love, where she would whip up crowds into a frenzy by speaking in tongues and delivering faith healing demonstrations. And with that, the donations just poured in. And she and her mother were really smart about it, where they reinvested into bigger and bigger venues, which meant massive crowds. And by 1922, she was breaking attendance records set by the biggest evangelical names at the time. And there was one event in San Diego that more than 30,000 people attended, prompting the deployment of the military for crowd control because it was so massive. And there's photos of this event. It's really something to, to look at. It's just a sea of people. And there's famously this event that happened where she laid hands on a woman who had been paralyzed since childhood. It was like an elderly woman in her 70s, 80s. And she rose from her chair and walked across the stage. And the audience just reached a complete frenzy at that point. Yeah, it's important to remember too that in the evangelical movement like that, that the gifts of the Spirit are a very important tenet of the church. It includes speaking in tongues, being able to speak in tongues, being able to perceive what someone else who is saying, who is speaking in tongues, and heal others. And, you know, so the the belief that these types of miracles is completely a possibility. But it was really the right person at the right time with the right message to gather up a huge, huge audience, which is certainly exampled by what you just spoke about with those 30,000 people that showed up. But all the travel took a toll on Amy, and it was time to settle down the business and keep her family off the road. And interestingly, she chose Los Angeles, which was at the time really a progressive, fast-moving, glittery young city. But it was actually a genius move because she could piggyback on the entertainment world with her style of services that often included pop culture references and humor in order to connect with her audience. But she felt like a little piece of home for folks who were moving to L.A. for the opportunities, but still had more conservative roots from the towns in the middle of the U.S. that they had left behind. She raised funds to build the Angelus Temple in Echo Park and opened its doors just over a hundred years ago on January 1st, 1923. The building was constructed to feel more like a place you would go to see, like a Broadway musical, than you would a church service. I mean, that isn't even usual today right. with the mega churches that exist. But then that was a very different idea. And the mm -hmm. building was packed with 5,300 seats for services held seven days a week. And that wow. was really unheard of at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it just goes to show she could pack the house and put on a show every single day or evening. And by the spring of 1926, Sister Amy had become more of a phenomenon than ever, a household name across America, really. And she founded multiple satellite churches that she called the Four Square Church across the nation and eventually became one of the pioneers in the use of broadcast mass media for wide dissemination of all of the religious services. And it, there's a wonderful PBS documentary. I love their documentaries about this historical stuff that we cover in LA. I remember they did a really good one on Frank Lloyd Wright, but they describe Amy as this, quote, Amy Semple McPherson was the most exciting, enthusiastic, 
controversial evangelist between World War I and World War II. Everyone in the United States knew about her. She was basically a combination of Oprah Winfrey, Jennifer Aniston, Billy Graham, and to add a political dimension, Pat Robertson. She was the person everyone was talking about. She was the patron saint of California. Wow. That's yeah. a great description. I love that they throw Jennifer Aniston in there. I know. I think because like, you know, also she's good looking and young. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah probably was, you know, a trendsetter, you know. Yeah, that kind of or thing. kind of like, well, she's from Canada. I was going to say all-American woman, but <laughs> by that time we had adopted her, sounds like. Right. But then on May 18th, 1926, the unthinkable happened when Sister Amy disappeared from Venice Beach, California after going for a swim. Her secretary, Emma Schaefer, had been with her and reported that Amy seemingly just disappeared into the ocean. That night, Amy was supposed to give a sermon at a regular service at the temple. However, her congregation was surprised to see her mother walk out on the stage instead. There were already some rumblings going on in the crowd, and many gave the sermon without addressing Amy's absence until the very end when she finally stated, Sister Amy was with God. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was that's, that's a big very deal. disrupting to the crowd at the end. Yeah. Because they're um, waiting. They're like, where's Amy? She's not here. This is her stand-in, and then, oh, she's dead? Yeah. Jeez. Or, I mean, even to not say that she died, but to to use that sort of religious mm. phrasing, it's interesting. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, as well as I do, when you're doing essentially a death notification, you're supposed to use very direct language by using the words dead, not these, I don't know. Passive. Yeah, yeah. passive, like analogies where people's brains can just go wherever they want because people immediately are in denial anyway. So. Right. You're going to say your son has left us. Well, where is he? Yeah. Uh, No, that's not what I mean. Amy's disappearance was huge news with daily updates appearing in newspapers across the country. Parishioners held day and night seaside vigils, and there was a massive search for any clues about her disappearance. Tragically, two people died searching for her body. Some reports say that they were both search and rescue professionals, but another report said that one of the people who died was a church member, a young woman who drowned herself in grief over Amy's disappearance. So sad. Yeah. For many, the idea of losing their spiritual mentor and leader was just incomprehensible. A reporter interviewing one of the congregation members said, God wouldn't let her die. She was too noble. Her work was too great. Her mission was not ended. She can't be dead. So there's that, that denial. process of grief or denial. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The search was an absolutely massive operation with no resource or expense spared. A Coast Guard cutter patrolled just offshore as deep sea divers went up and down the bay. Besides using divers and trawl boats, searchers also set off dynamite charges in the waters of Santa Monica Bay, hoping to jar her body loose from its watery grave. It Is may that be a thing? Hard... <laughs> I need to talk to my diver friends. Do they do that? They set off explosives to... Well, it's... I mean, yeah. I mean, it's also used for fishing. Different. You know, it's used to stun because it, it shakes things up. But Jeez. I don't think it's yeah. the most expeditious way. It may be hard for us to imagine, but this was just an enormous event. The media coverage, the morning faithful, the sound of explosions coming from the ocean. It must have been really yeah. a huge, overwhelming event. And on the beach between Venice and Ocean Park Boulevards, it's reported that a group of mourners would just wander aimlessly. And when the spirit took them, they would drop to the sand, sobbing in prayer and through their tears chanting, Amy is with Jesus, pray for her. Amy is with Jesus, pray for her. Wow. Well, despite the concern that Amy perished in the ocean, no one was taking any chances that something more sinister couldn't have happened. Although she seemed fairly convinced that Amy had died, her mother offered a $25,000 reward. So with that, of course, reports and sightings 
poured in from all across the country. You had a detective in San Francisco firmly claiming that he saw her at a railway station saying to reporters, I know her well by sight and I know that I am not mistaken. And further complicating search and records processes were claims that she had been kidnapped. So Amy's mother receives a ransom note demanding the sum of $50,000 for the safe return of her daughter. And the note contained an ominous warning saying, quote, mum's the word, keep police away. So after that, several ransom notes were received, but determined to be fraudulent. I'm just going to go through those real quick. So one was a handwritten note by some people who signed off as the Revengers, and they wanted half a million dollars. And then there was another one for asking for $25,000, which was conveyed by this character who was a blind lawyer who said he had been in contact with the kidnappers and he was sort of acting as the go-between. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then another lengthy and poorly typewritten ransom letter from the Avengers this time arrived around June 19th, demanding, again, a half a million dollars in return for not selling Sister Amy into white slavery. So, I mean, <laughs> there's just like... I don't know. I'm I'm guessing a lot of these are getting put into the newspapers and then it's just a shit show after that because yeah. you have these copycats and everyone trying to get a piece. And we've seen this with other cases of the time. And it was reported that Minnie Kennedy, her mom, didn't even notify the police on a lot of these correspondences. One, because she just took it upon herself to determine they were fraudulent, but also she sincerely thought that Amy had just drowned. So she was like, this is all horseshit. I'm I'm tossing these in the trash. But the ones the cops did see, they were they were saying they were fraudulent, which I don't know how you go about doing that, but it, we saw this what oh, it was in the Don Juan dentist case where they were getting ransom letters and sort of disregarding them pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean it's again, as we see in these vintage episodes, a lot is lost to history. But it is interesting that you would think one would assume that the most basic instructions in an investigation like this would be, hey, you have to share all of your information with us. Everything you get needs to be communicated to us. And it looks like Minnie was not interested in doing that. Whether or not, I mean, maybe it was because she really did think she was dead and wanted to put the 25000 out there just to keep her name alive, but like with no intention to ever actually pay that. I don't know. Right. Or maybe Minnie's in on it. Ooh. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly <laughs> mom knew what was going on at some point, I think. Anyway, as most true crime and history buffs know, Amy was not dead. But she miraculously reappeared in a small Mexican town known as Agua Prieta five weeks later, stumbling out of the desert and collapsing in front of the Mexican couple who came across her. She claimed that she had been kidnapped drugged, tortured, and held for ransom in a shack by two men and a woman only barely escaping with their life to survive the burning sands of the desert. Sounds so familiar. It does sound familiar, <laughs> doesn't it? I wonder if Sherry Papini is a vintage L.A. history buff. <laughs> really? Because it, it, I mean, except for, you know, Papini making it incredibly racist. But, well, I mean, this could be getting there. It could, yeah. Amy was identified by hospital staff after speaking with her mother and providing doctors with the location of a specific scar that she had on her finger and the name of her pet pigeon. <laughs> 
Love this. This is a good note to self. Set this up as a family safety protocol immediately. Absolutely. (laughs) Because having a pet pigeon means you'll always be able to send a message to someone, I guess. (laughs) I guess. So basically, she was like, I don't know if this is my daughter. Ask her these questions. And then I'll I'll come all the way down to Mexico to see if it's her. Yeah, mom. Maybe, I mean, you know, mom, many may have been burned out by all of the different, you know, conflicting information coming in now and didn't want to, you know, be across. I mean, she was, was she still in Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. Because they had to get her, yeah, to go across country lines and then, you know, transfer. Yeah. I mean, it could have been a con person that, you know, she thought was someone she'd have to deal with. Yeah. She was reported by the doctor to be emaciated, covered in sand and grime with cactus needles in her skin and having a blistered toe. And when she was interviewed further about the events that led to her disappearance, she claimed that while she was on the beach near LA, a young couple had approached her and asked her to please come and pray for their sick child. And out of spiritual and physical concern for the child, Amy went with them and looked into the backseat of the car, but there was no child. And the couple shoved her into the car, incapacitated her by placing a cloth soaked in chloroform over her face. So chloroform seems to have been a much bigger thing back in the day. I mean, I don't know. Well, I got to tell you, as a kid, I was really taught by the cartoons and television shows I watched <laughs> to have a much higher concern for both chloroform and quicksand. I'm not Stop kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, like, think about, like, I mean, I grew up watching, you know, Looney Tunes and, what, Three Stooges. Three Stooges was always using crap like that. Oh, and my God. Every adventure, adventure movie or, like, Johnny Quest. Yeah, yeah, the quicksand, yeah. <laughs> it is terrifying. It does look like it. I mean, Well, it's also awful because, like, dumb criminals think that they're going to be able to incapacitate people by using chloroform and they don't realize that it's not instantaneous and they also don't realize that people keep coming too as soon as they get more oxygen in your system they come back so they knock them out again and they can you can end up causing brain damage to the person you kidnapped so sidebar there you go i know so sister amy further identified her captors as three americans that included a woman named mexican rose and a man named steve (laughs) so we already have like these very interesting names or dramatic names. I mean, well, Steve isn't, but really Mexican Rose. And she claims that she had been held captive for weeks in a shack in Mexico. Again, drugged, starving. And during this time, her captors were planning to obtain a ransom for her release. And she said that it was for the amount of half a million dollars, which is what we saw in a couple of those ransom notes. Amy was bravely able to foil their nefarious plan by sawing through ropes they had tied her with. She actually had sawed it on the edge of a tin can. Okay. And I guess, I don't know, maybe they were, it was part of the food that they were giving her was just canned food. But she saws through those ropes and then staggers about 20 miles through the burning desert to Agua Prieta, where she's found. So clearly, none of that is really going to work out logistically. I no. mean, if you're weakened, emaciated, drugged for weeks, now you're going to stumble for 20 miles. I mean, I don't know, 20 miles is a long time. I mean, someone can have the will to live for sure, but this seems a bit much. Well... Because LA Not So Confidential aims to bring all of our listeners the facts and the research, here you go. It would take about five hours to walk 
20 miles at a normal pace. And at a relaxed pace, it would take about six hours and 45 minutes. So I'm not sure if there's research on how long it would take to stumble for 20 miles, but it seems a lot longer than a day, especially for someone that was so gravely incapacitated, meaning even higher possibility of exposure to the dangers of the elements. I mean, I, I know we're overthinking this, but like, it just is so clearly untrue. But she had untrue. cactus needles in her that I'm like, ooh, that's... That's that's a good good little and that's uh, true. twist. And the, the starving thing, I mean, that's very much in line with the Papini case. Yeah, of, no, know, totally. She did it. Reducing her calorie intake in order to change her appearance. So Mother Kennedy immediately rushed to Arizona Hospital now that she has confirmed the identity of her daughter to reunite with her and telling their followers, my God, Sister McPherson is alive. Run up the flag on the temple and send out the world broadcast. The Lord has returned his own. Upon Amy's return to Los Angeles by train, a crowd of more than 50,000 showed up to welcome her. She made a grand re-entrance to the city in a massive parade that featured roses dropped from airplanes along the route. She was a gone girl before there was a gone girl. Ooh, yes, she was. And she dun, dun, dun. is back. But despite the celebration and relief of the return of their spiritual mentor, Amy's homecoming was not relished by all in Los Angeles. The Chamber of Commerce viewed the event as a gaudy display, and many officials were less than pleased with her return. You see, although they folded Sister Amy into the fabric of the city when she initially arrived in LA, you know, we know it was a very corrupt group of city yes. officials at the time. They really started to see her before her disappearance, started to see her as somewhat of an enemy in the sense that she was trying to get folks back to a more traditional way of life, making spirituality really an important part of their life. And they felt that this was in direct opposition to the progressive future that they saw for their booming city. So they were kind of glad that she was gone for a while, I guess you can say. And what resulted from that almost immediately was that Los Angeles District Attorney Isa Keys called for an investigation into the evangelist's account of the kidnapping. So Sister Amy voluntarily appeared before a grand jury instead of hiding behind attorneys. And the media, as you can imagine, just goes bonkers and starts spinning this event with accusations of fraud and citing several witnesses who had spotted her in Northern California during the time of her disappearance, and not just in Northern California, but in the company of a man. Yeah, so the narrative that gained the most traction was a story that centered on the fact that Kenneth Ormiston, a married engineer at the Christian radio station KFSG, which was owned by McPherson's church, he had disappeared just when McPherson did. The two worked together on McPherson's regular broadcasts, and there were reports that conversations were overheard by staff in the months leading up to the disappearance that supported the notion that they were in love or having an affair. There were so many reports of sightings that police were dispatched to a cottage in Carmel-by-the-Sea, where Ormiston had been seen with an unidentified woman during the disappearance. Ormiston admitted to having an adulterous affair at the time of McPherson's disappearance, but he denied that the stranger, known as Mrs. X, was Sister Amy. Police dusted for fingerprints, but could not find any belonging to the evangelist. So after numerous witness testimony and evidence collection, the DA decided that there was not enough evidence to move forward with the prosecution, and thereby dropped all charges. Yeah, so the, the media frenzy that happened during the inquiries, as well as afterwards, really changed the course of McPherson's career. I mean, her reappearance and the questioning of it and that old trope of let's focus on her sex life perhaps and kind of drag her through the mud that way this just 
really was kind of the start of her downfall. And in Los Angeles, ahead of any court dates, McPherson noticed that the newspaper stories about her kidnapping were just becoming more and more sensationalized as the days passed. And to maintain that excited, continued public interest, she speculated that the newspapers let her original account give way to what she said torrents of new spice and thrill. So it really just got out of hand. And that those were some of her comments on it. And it didn't matter if the material was disproved or wildly contradictory. No correction or apology was given. And it wasn't going to matter anyway at this point. The negative publicity was eventually the downfall of this woman who had done so much for her community. You know, not only having these services and giving people a place to go, but she opened food kitchens that served the poor and served a lot of the Mexican-American communities where they were feeding hundreds of folks every single day. So she she did a lot for Los Angeles and for Los Angeles's poor communities, as well as obviously what she did for big time evangelism. So we'll find out what happened to her, but let's pause real quick because I want to discuss what we think we have here as well as something we've covered a few times that fit into the story. So let's take some points from earlier episodes, because we've talked about this several different times, about individuals who fake their victimization. Generally, these folks are trying to meet a need of either a benefit or attention. And in her case, it doesn't seem like attention. I mean, she's got tons of attention, right? I mean, she's the center of this, you know, now worldwide evangelical broadcast. But it's kind of the opposite of that. She wants to get away from the attention, likely. I mean, we're, we're making a lot of surmising yeah. here. But I guess it depends really on on how you see it, what your perspective would be. Like we said, some saw it as the ultimate publicity stunt. But for me, it's not like she was getting less popular and had to pull something like this. Yeah. So that doesn't really seem to fit. But with the attention-seeking piece, this is usually hand-in-hand with some pretty strong traits of personality disorders. And if you want more details, go back and listen to episode 17 or our collaborations with Women in Crime on the Cindy James and the Sherry Papini case. So remember what we also see with people who fake their own victimizations. This is different from those who want to disappear forever. The difference is, is that mainly they generally have traits of desperation, a pattern of lack of coping skills, and a pattern of impulsive behaviors. Yeah. So with that, I'm curious to know your thoughts. What's going on with her? You know, I remember, like, I have to put it in this historical context because I remember the TV movie coming out with Faye Dunaway because back in the day, TV movies were like a big thing. And I had never heard of this story before and I was a kid, yeah. but it seemed like kind of spooky and weird and, you know, like what's going on. And they also play the character, you know, as her being like really over the top. I mean, and but if you've ever been to an evangelical service, sure. if you're not in that belief system, it can seem very over the top with people acting in these really flamboyant religious fervor ways. So I, I understand that. But my first perspective or view on this is just the weight of celebrity. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of my job is sort of being there as a consult to law enforcement when influencers and podcasters and YouTubers who may not be known to anybody but a narrow section of the population, but they achieve stardom like very, very quickly. And they're completely unprepared for the weight of it, for the people that stalk them, for the people that say inappropriate things for or if even if they don't have any of that bad stuff that like, okay, now this is your life. Now you have to produce every day. You have to produce content every day. There's a lot of weight and responsibility and pressure that comes with that. And 
I mean, had anyone done what she had been doing right. at the time? Could anybody actually relate to the level of exposure that she had at that time on media that was this newly birthed entity? I don't think so. Yeah, and working seven days a week. And then, you know, she can't just like walk out to, you know, Echo Park and go over and take a lap around the lake or something. I'm sure she would get a hot dog and rent a swan boat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't go near the water, Amy. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gross. There's a lot of ducks there. Yeah, she just can't be herself at this point. She's just too big, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, you know, she was reported to have experienced postpartum depression, which is not uncommon in in women. But we have to put it in the context of what was the treatment that was available then. And there may not have yeah. been anything to address her long struggle with symptoms of depression if sure. they continued after that period. And also just, I think you hit the wall. I mean, we right. see it all the time where business professionals, people burn out. I think maybe, you know, I mean, she's still human. You know, she might have been driven by the need to connect with somebody and she's already lost a husband. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't want to be making excuses for people's behavior. Certainly when you take that level of responsibility as being like the spiritual leader for your congregation. But mm -hmm. it seems like there were just a lot of pressures. I'm not, I, none of this, if she did go off and have this affair, which is what all the evidence points to, I, I just think it was like a sort of a meltdown. Like she couldn't even consider the ramifications and didn't have the energy yeah. to care about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I generally you know, don't get personality disordered from her too right. much with all that she accomplished and all the resiliency she had shown through different struggles in her life. Overwhelmed? Yeah. Tired of being in spotlight? For sure. And again, she had a really good thing going. I don't think it was this stunt to get more publicity by resurrecting herself, but it feels like a really desperate, eh, sort of semi-planned escape from a heavy burden. Impulsive, but also, okay, I'm just going to go and do this. And then kind of like that, oh shit moment of, I need to get back to reality. I need to get back to my kids probably. And how do I, you know, whip this up? It's very Sherry Papini. Yeah. But with more weight on her shoulders, right? Or different type of weight. I mean, it's all relative, I'm sure. But the one piece of the story that doesn't match for me that really makes this feel like she did indeed make it up is that her secretary is there as she is usually to watch her swim and she doesn't see her talking to this couple with this supposedly sick child. It's just like that one little piece of the story that didn't add up that makes me go, oh, okay. Like this yeah. was not her being kidnapped because you could start to put things together like, okay, well, and I guess there was, I, I don't know if it was in the PBS documentary, but there was a very wealthy white woman at the time who had been kidnapped for a large amount of money, and I think even had been taken to Mexico, and people were like, well, see, it could have been a string of it. And I was like, yeah. well, it could be copycat, like it's in the right. media, and she immediately goes to that. So yeah, I think she was just over it for a while and needed a break, and no one was willing to let her have that in a healthy way. Yeah. Sister Amy continued to expand and build her church up until her death in 1944 while residing in Oakland, California. She died by overdose on a sedative that was allegedly compounded by kidney failure, according to the coroner. The medication is reported to not have been prescribed to her. So some people have suspected suicide, but she had attempted to call her doctor to complain about the medication, making her feel ill. But he was in surgery at the time and she lost consciousness before medical aid was available. Available. 
So her death left really many unanswered questions. The kidnapping remained unsolved. The controversy over a possible hoax was never completely resolved. And both her critics and supporters thought that she should have followed through on a trial to clear her name because her name was synonymous with the church and she was a reflection on the status of the church. So she left... A, a lot of tension behind in the structure of the church. And again, people thought it was really frustrating that she gave an account of the kidnapping in a book, a 1927 book entitled In the Service of the King, The Story of My Life. But it was really just kind of the same old thing. No one, they didn't feel like they got any more answers. And Sister Amy was mocked in the media for years after the alleged kidnapping. But the scandal did not diminish her popularity, at least with some folks. But then it seemed like also she was trying to get it going again because she ends up opening a stage musical about her life and it only lasts a week before it has to close. And then she ends up actually getting into a relationship and then marrying a one of the performers from that production. And again, like her congregation started to turn their back on her. They're like, you're divorced. You should be basically married to God and the church. And she just wanted to find happiness by her saying that, you know, she kind of saw her life as two different things and she had goals for those. And she had met all the goals as this communicator you know, between God and her parishioners and everything that the church had been built up to be and how many people she had reached and helped. But then she also had this goal of being a loving mother and wife in a God-fearing home. And she never really got that goal met. So interestingly, though, I found just today before we started recording that there's more recently, 2005, there was a musical, a Broadway musical called Scandalous, The Life and Trials of Amy Semple McPherson. I can't believe you dug this out. <laughs> and with the book and lyrics written by Kathy Lee Gifford. <laughs> so its productions started in 2005 in White Plains, New York, and then went to Broadway in 2012. And it's a musical based on Sister Amy. Had you heard of it? No, I haven't. Now I have to go look for it. I want to, I do want to, before anybody comes back and gets on us, any Broadway experts, it was, she didn't write it herself. It was Kathleen Gifford, David Pomeranz, and David Friedman. Oh, got it. Okay. She worked with a a team to to produce this story, which is very interesting because Kathleen Gifford has been a a religious singer for years and still puts out albums and does shows performing her gospel stuff. Very interesting. I mean, the original structure of Amy's mega church is still standing right in the heart of Echo Park, and it is still home to the Angelus Temple. They celebrate the church's centennial this year as Sister Amy opened the doors on January 1st, 1923. Wow. So while the Foursquare Gospel Church was worth millions at the time, when she died, Amy Simple McPherson's estate was sorted out and the evangelist only had about $10,000 to her name. So the church, known casually now as Foursquare, has changed hands several times over the years as well as weathering several financial scandals. The church has over 8.8 million members in over 67,000 churches across more than 150 nations. It's a beautiful building. I never knew what it was driving by it until I started. Oh, you didn't know that? No, I didn't know. And it's not the only four square building. I mean, it's like the big one, but there are other sort of octagonal buildings. And then I know there's one over in sort of Silver Lake ish, I think. 
But yeah, they're everywhere. So aside from those two musical attempts at portraying Amy Simple McPherson's life, there have been a number of movies that have been made around or inspired by this story. Yeah. And in 1976, there was The Disappearance of Amy, starring Faye Dunaway and Betty Davis. And then in 2019, a film called Sister Amy was released starring Amy Hargreaves and Julie White. And you can find this one on Hulu. And it takes a comedic spin on the tale. And it's like, it's refreshing rather yeah. than a traumatic, dark story. And it works. It works really well. It does. Yeah, the the acting in it is really good. I don't know these folks that are in it, but yeah, it's it's kind of campy, but but cute. And then, of course, so my favorite, and you and I have been going back and forth about this for the last couple of days because we love the original two seasons of Penny Dreadful so much. But of course, in 2020, Penny Dreadful City of Angels came out, which was a total departure from the first two seasons. I mean, I would say even just a complete spinoff, just using the name, really. That came out and that that takes place in 1938 Los Angeles. And it touches on a number of societal and political issues of the day, like the conflict with the Mexican-American population and law enforcement, the presence of Nazis in Southern California, and the rise of radio evangelism, all with a paranormal twist, of course, like Penny Dreadful does. And in this, there's a character called Sister Molly Finister, and she's clearly modeled after Amy McPherson. The structure they use for the megachurch is actually... Pasadena Civic Auditorium, where I graduated and got my degree handed to me. Took a lot of fantastical things that were actually happening in Los Angeles at the time and makes it, kind of fits it together like fiction, which I know you and I were talking about, this is my second time watching it through. I didn't actually finish it the first time. Mm -hmm. And I know you weren't terribly impressed with it. But I had kind of a light bulb go on last night when I was watching it. I have a couple more episodes left, but I was like, okay, I need to look at this, like the context of the original Penny Dreadful, where they had all these storylines intersecting Frankenstein and Dorian Gray and Vals Helsing. And that's kind of what this is because there's the Nazi eugenic stuff that's happening. There's yeah. Amy McPherson there. They even talk about the Marion Parker case. They, they drop a little reference to it at one point where the captain, I guess he was the detective working that case when it happened. It, and they give it a different name, right? They don't use the name Marion Parker. But he talks about how seeing her eyes wired open, you know, basically gave him trauma from working that case. And then later, that little German boy that's Magna's son. Magda. Magda does a sleepover and tells that as the scary story. And then the little boys see him with his eyes wired open, like he's dressed like a little girl with just a torso. So I thought this is actually kind of brilliant. They have all these intersecting Los Angeles true crime things coming together in one story with all of this other fictional stuff happening. But in the show, it's called the temple is called Joyful Voices Ministry and Temple. And one of the murder victims is of the main story is a deacon and mercer for the temple that she was having an affair with. So eventually that's how the detectives cross paths with her. I think it's it's worth a, a second watch or first watch even just to see all the cool LA stuff. Yeah, there's some very cool LA stuff in it. And there is... I mean, I think it was just too too ambitious because mm. for me, the, the first two seasons of Pretty Dreadful, even though they weren't perfect, they were taking all of these fictional things and weaving them together. Whereas City of Angels wasn't fictional. Like all of those were real stories. Like the real reason the hi- they wanted that highway built through yeah. was to to separate the communities, to keep the poor on one side and away from yeah. the rich. And like, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it was, a, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's lots of interesting stuff being told about and within the context of, of two divine presences, Magda being the evil demon and the Santa Muerte being yep. beautiful, sort of slowly sobbing, wandering, <laughs> but gentle, you know, yeah. angel of death to yeah. escort people. But I thought that the woman that played the Amy Simple McPherson role was so fantastic mm-hmm. because they made her a singer. They made yes. her like sort of a reinvented lounge singer. Yeah. And that's how she was reaching the masses. She was on the radio and had this beautiful voice and people would come and listen to her. Yeah. I thought that was like a really, really great way to frame the whole thing. And Nathan so, Lane is awesome in it. as <laughs> an old crusty detective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's really good. Well, there we go. First vintage case in the books for 2023. Right as I'm getting over my crud and you probably have yours creeping on. So. Woo-hoo. Healing to all of us. (laughs) Yeah, healing to everyone. And let's start this year off right. Get this out of our system. And we got a lot more good stuff for you on the way. So we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thank you, guys. Bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA not so confidential. Bye folks.